0: Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Trevor, thank you, my friend. Appreciate you leading us. Welcome to Midweek, by the way. Welcome to the well. If you happen to be a guest with us, uh, so grateful that you're hanging out. Uh, We're going to start a new series here tonight in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles and... Uh, want to uh, turn there to get oriented. That'd be great. Just a sort of reminder as we get started though, there's a lot of new people that are checking things out, not just here at midweek, but here at the well in general. And by way of reminder, February 2nd, uh, we're going to launch what we call open groups here, which is a chance for anybody who comes to the well and wants to get connected in a community life environment, a life group, these tables, there'll be more of them. And at the end of the gathering, we'll do a condensed gathering starting February 2nd. You can just jump right in into a small group right here. Kids ministry is gonna be operating. They're gonna be handling the kids. The reason I mentioned that, this last Sunday we, we uh, broke a record. We have never had that many kids at our church at both campuses. Uh, two children short of 800 kids. Uh, which is insane. And so what a privilege uh, and and what a responsibility. Now many of those folks who are trying to find a seat uh, in the mornings are gonna start coming here at midweek because we'll have children's ministry which means uh, we need to respond to that. So uh, I wanna invite you if you are uh, willing to rotate through uh, and serve with some of the kids, we will train you, we will walk with you. Uh, But we have as a church a responsibility to respond to what God is doing. Reminder, we are a battleship, we are not a cruise ship. And so uh, we are sort of sounding the alarm, and if you're interested in either leading an open life group or serving by way of rotation so that you can be in there with the kids but still stay with us, please let us know. Because we have a feeling the deluge is coming of people that are gonna be coming here, especially with kids. So as you open your Bible, uh, if you're new to the well, we typically pick a book and kind of walk our way through it. We're going to be talking about Joshua, uh, who is responding to his faithful God. And uh, we're going to lay out, a, hopefully, a good theology of who our God is and learn together that he is faithful. But before we get into the book of Joshua, candidly, we have to ask and answer a few questions like, who is Joshua? And you say, well, Joshua took over after Moses. Okay, great. Who was Moses. Well, Moses was the one that God raised up to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. Well, where is the promised land? Well, the promised land was the land of Canaan promised to Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, Abraham was the first patriarch chosen by God to raise up God's chosen people. And you say, well, God's chosen people, Yes, uh, God called Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12 to be his chosen people. And you might say, but I thought we were all God's people. And the answer is, well, yes, but. And so in order to get to Joshua, we, we kind of have to rewind the tape. And in typical well style, we have to start from the beginning, so Genesis 1 verse one. And what we're going to do here this week is a bit of an overview from Genesis one to Egypt, which is kind of the flow um, of tonight's message. Next week, we'll deal with Egypt to the promised land so that when we get there, we have context. Have you ever watched a movie and things are happening that people around you think is awesome and you have no context for it because they have a backstory that you don't have? Uh, understanding a bit of the backstory makes whatever you're experiencing even better. And I think Joshua is going to be no exception to that. So if you flip to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we'll start with this. Um, in the beginning, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, part of the reason we are starting in Genesis 1 1, there are many who are with us who are new to their Bible. And if we make the assumption that they know who Joshua is and they know the story, uh, then we leave them in some ways uh, uninformed of what happened before that. Genesis 1:1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse two of Genesis, the earth was formless and void. And as you're looking at your Bibles, hopefully you see that it says, "Then darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters." So. As you begin your Bible, it starts with what's called theology proper, which is an understanding of who God is. And so we'll begin just by understanding some of his attributes. So when it comes to God, we're not talking about your God, or your God, or the God of culture. We're talking about the God that's revealed himself in his Bible. And so that's really our source text. That's where we're getting our information. And so what we learn about God in the Bible is one, he is eternal which means God is preexistent. So God was present in Genesis 1-1 before anything else was in the beginning, God. Second, we notice that God is infinite. He not only is preexistent, he is everlasting. He has no ending, no beginning, no ending. And we notice here in chapter one that he is the creator. God created now the heavens and the earth, which means this world originated through a creative power and a designer. Thus, the design of our body, the fact that your ear operates the way it does is not because of genetic mutation or accident, it's because there was a creator who created you with the ability to hear by his grace. And so we have a God. Therefore, we did not evolve. We are not accidents, um, and we are not just survivors of the process of evolution. And uh, also, we know that God then is powerful, And so, because God is the creator, the assumption in that is that we are not. Now, we're going to, as we lay out a good theology proper, we're going to push a little bit on some of our own humanism. Because in humanism, we like to think that we're in charge, that we're in control. That worldview falls apart when you start reading your Bible because you see how big God is. And when God is as big as he deserves to be, uh, you see as small as we actually deserve to be ourselves. So, God is all powerful, he's the one. Who created the world by the very word of his mouth. He spoke it into existence. We also know in the text that God is all-knowing. You might know it as the concept of being um, omniscient. It's this idea, Habakkuk 2.20 says that the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. And Isaiah says that the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is all knowing and Lord of all creation. We also see in the Bible, God is ever present. And this is where we have to understand we're talking about God, not what we're comfortable with. You've gotta get outside of time and space and recognize that God who created the world is also omnipresent. Psalm 139 says, where can I come? Where can I go rather from your spirit or from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take upon the wings of the dawn, behold, you are there. He's omnipresent, he is everywhere. He's also holy. Now, we don't have a good character or, or maybe a good um, comparison of what holy looks like because most things in this world are tarnished. But God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And the Bible says of him that he is also sovereign. The idea of sovereign means he is Lord of all that is possible and even actual, which means he is controlling literally everything all the time. And so, therefore, he is the authority that everything in heaven and on earth is subject to him. Now that doesn't suggest that all of heaven and earth know that or will acknowledge that, Uh, but the fact is true whether they're willing to acknowledge it or not. So he is Lord of all creation. Whether people believe in him or not, it really is irrelevant as it relates to God. It does not change at all the fact that he is in authority over all. Now we live in a culture that likes to say, yeah, yeah, but that's your truth. In my truth, God is not in authority. I could care less what your truth is. And I could care less what my truth is because truthfully, that doesn't matter. What matters is what does the Bible say about our God? And sometimes what the Bible says about our God is uh, terrifying and uncomfortable. And uh, he doesn't really apologize for being awesome. He just sort of is. And one of the other things we learn, though, about God is um, he is the authority over all, and he's actually beholden To no one. It isn't answer to anyone. That there is no one above God. Jeremiah put it this way in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. It says that there is no one like you, O Lord. You are great. Great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For uh, among all the wise men of the nations and all of their kingdoms, there is none like you. So I don't know what view of God you had when you came in. I don't know if this challenges you or bothers you a little bit, but when we, when we start our Bible, we need to understand that before you can get to any other book, including Joshua, we have to start by understanding who our God is. Now that can feel to some terrifying because the awful reality is you are not in control. You are not running things. You are subject to a higher authority whether you knew it or not. And C.S. Lewis in his classic the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, has an interaction with two of the characters. One is Beaver, and the other, if you're familiar with it, is a gal named Susan, about the terrifying nature of our God. And and here's what it says. Beaver, speaking, says, uh, Aslan, Aslan, the lion in the character, the God figure in the character, says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, in fact, the great lion. And oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall uh, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Beaver. Um, Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. When we learn of the attributes of God, it can be very terrifying if you don't know the character of God. And the character of God is that God is good, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, Psalm 8615 says, but you, O Lord, are a good and merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The Bible says of his character that he is compassionate, that he is faithful, that he is immutable, he is unchanging, he does not bend his will to the breeze of culture, he is set, he is steadfast, and he by his very nature John says in 1 John chapter four, is love. So when you hold those two in tension, his, his attributes that are terrifying, and yet his, his character, which is all of those wonderful things, the highest expression of his love he created. And if you're looking at your Bibles, flip to chapter one, verse 26. Because in chapter one, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. And we've mentioned this before, but again, the plurality is worth noting. Let us, as if God is speaking of himself as three persons. You see Father, Son, and Spirit as early, at least allowed for, as early as Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his image... And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God, by his grace, creates humankind, male and female, to be something distinct of all creation. Of six days of creation, of God speaking the world into existence, on the sixth day, he made the crowning point of it all, and he hand makes mankind in his image. The only piece of creation that bears his image is humankind. And we bear what's called the Imago Dei, which means as humans, regardless of ethnicities, ethnicities don't even exist yet. Regardless of background, backgrounds don't even exist yet. At the very concept, at the start of creation, we are bearing the image of God. Shared worth, shared value, and shared dignity because of our creator who created us. And we are created to reflect his image in the world. The New Testament is going to call us ambassadors of Christ, which means as humans, we do not exist to reflect our own glory. We were created by God to reflect his glory. Again, whether we acknowledge that or not. And if you look at verse 28, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the key. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over everything that was been created, everything that moves on the earth. The important part is fill the earth and subdue it. Now, humankind as a whole, being different from all creation, we bear a special value that nothing else has. If you drive down the road and you see a squirrel on the side of the road, uh, you might feel a little bad about that unless you purposely tried to kill the thing because it is a rat. Or you could drive by and see a child on the side of the road and your response would be very different. It's very different because there's a humanity in mankind that is distinct. There's a value there that nothing else has. That's very, very critical. And yet, this world is not the way it should be. And that's because of chapter three. And in chapter three, sin comes into the world, humankind chooses autonomy, and that impacts us all. We've talked about that here at the well over and over and over. And yet God pursues his fallen humanity in love and he promises as early as Genesis 3.15 a deliverer who will one day come and crush the serpent's head and in the process bruise his own heel and then in 3.21 God offers something innocent to die in the place of the sinful and clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. Obvious sort of pattern set up of one day the Lamb of God who will come as the innocent lamb to die in our place. Well meanwhile the plague of sin continues. And as it continues, it grows rampant until, look forward now to chapter six, until the flood narrative. And what happens in chapter six of Genesis, verse five, is very critical. Sin is now unchecked, it's continuing to grow through humanity, one generation to another, because we're brought forth in sin and conceived in iniquity, sinners both by deed and by nature, because of Genesis three. And in Genesis chapter six, verse five, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, And then every intent of his thought of his heart was evil continually. That's an indictment, by the way. Like everything they even think ever continually is evil. And in verse six, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and all of the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the sky. I am sorry that I have made them. So here's God so disgusted by our sin, he's hitting the reset button. And due to the rampant spread of sin, he's gonna destroy the earth with a flood. Now, that sounds harsh. And you could say, man, that, that, that sounds really, really hard. Why, why would God do that? Uh, I just wanna remind you, Romans chapter nine says, on the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right to, make, oh, to have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honor and one for common use. Point being, if God is really the authority, who are we to even answer back to God as to what is right or what is not? As if our opinion would sway the almighty creator. Does that make sense? It doesn't make God out to be a, a sadist by any means, but it is suggesting that there is a, a sovereignty and a holiness to God and, and we're not really, he doesn't answer to us, if that makes sense. Now, with God now judging the world, in verse eight, there's, there's still hope mingled in the judgment. Notice that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of a sinful humanity, God goes, you know what, that guy. Now, when you look at Noah, there, there's nothing really about him that was exceedingly righteous. There's nothing really about him that's exceedingly noble. You get the idea that God said, okay, I'll, I'll take this guy. Right? Almost like you're, you're trying to pick from a a list, of, uh, a list of those that you wouldn't pick on your elementary school kickball team. and he's like, "All right, all right, I'll take that guy." But anyway, Noah finds favor. And the, and the flood comes. And we've got now water is going to cover the entire Earth. Rain will fall for 40 days and 40 nights. If you fast forward to chapter seven, two things happen to cause the global flood in verse 11. You're going to see the vapor canopy that surrounded the Earth uh, fell. And so what was a wonderful sort of um, greenhouse environment, it now falls, answers some of the questions as to why people pre-flood lived for so stinking long. You'll also see the water table below burst up and it covers the earth for 150 days. And if you look at verses 19 and following, the water prevailed more and more on the earth. Every mountain was covered. Uh, Verse uh, 20, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher than any mountain that was covered. So it literally goes above and beyond Everest. Uh, all flesh was moved, uh, was, um, that moved on the earth, birds and cattle, beasts, everything. Uh, verse 22 was destroyed or was killed or died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. So this global flood was catastrophic, destroys everything, and God is gonna begin afresh with Noah and his family, because Noah found favor or grace. Now, even in the flood, the Amago day continues. So humankind still bears the image of God. Now, remember, um, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, he repeats that commandment. So God blessed Noah. He blesses his sons and says to them, what? Chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Same commandment. So as God hits the reset button with Noah, the command is don't stay in one place, spread out. Now that's important because in chapter 11, as you fast forward a little bit there, human nature has a bent towards autonomy even after the flood. Now you would think after a global flood, you might listen to a sovereign God who just wiped out everything on earth. And yet in chapter 11, starting at verse one, all the earth used the same language and had the same words And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there and they said to one another, come, let us burn bricks and burn them thoroughly and say, verse four, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So let's stop and build a city. Otherwise, we're going to do exactly what God told us to do to begin with. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in verse four, the irony, they're gonna build a uh, tower that reaches to the heavens, but if you look at verse five, the Lord comes down to see this tower that they've built. So they didn't get anywhere near reaching the heavens. The Lord condescends, sees their tower. And in verse six, the Lord says, well, they become one people, they have the same language, And this is what they've begun to do. do. Now nothing uh, that they purpose will be impossible to them. Let us go down and confuse their languages that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city and there the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all of the face of the earth. So if you've ever wondered where ethnicities came from, it's here. If you ever wondered where languages came from, it's here. Uh, if you ever wondered where cultures came from, various cultures, it's here. Until this point, humanity was all one, Amago representing monolith of humans. Um, Acts 17 is going to say that he made from one man, every nation, one man, every race. So there's one race, the human race. Here now comes ethnicities. And so now they begin to spread out over the earth. And this is interesting. People begin to migrate in what some suggest was as the, the flood was uh, receding, they began to migrate into other landmass areas as the waters were su- succeeding or seceding, and that's most likely why you've got people on every continent as we know them today. And they're separated by what now is language, ethnicity, and culture, which is pretty fascinating. And so they spread out and accomplish Uh, what God initially wanted. But then God does something, as it relates to our book of Joshua, he does something a bit more focused. Even though humanity is over all of the earth, even though humanity is reflecting his glory, he calls now a special group of people to himself. And in so doing, he calls them a little pet name, like you might call your little sweetie. He calls them his little Jeshurun, which means his little upright ones. And uh, they're gonna be known by several names throughout history. They're initially called by the concept of them wandering around, being dwellers in tents. Some say it's the idea of being dusty ones because you live tent to tent to tent. Uh, They're called Hebrews based on that name. Uh, They're later gonna be known for the land that uh, God is gonna promise them. It's the land called the land of Judea, named after one of the sons of the patriarchs, and so they become known as the people of Judea or Jewish people. And then later, one of the uh, patriarchs that we'll look at here briefly gets his name changed uh, from Jacob to strives with God, which is translated Israel. And so they became known as the people of Israel. So when you look at a map today and you see of a modern state of Israel, you're talking about a group of people that God said, those are my people which is a fascinating thing. It's not to suggest that we still don't, as uh, red, white, and blue Americans, reflect the image of God. It's simply saying God is gonna do something now very, very different. If you have your Bibles, look at Genesis 12. Maybe the most important three verses in your Bible. Um, Genesis 12 is called the Abrahamic Covenant. God says, um, go forth to a guy named Abram, by the way. In Genesis 12:1, go forth from your country, from your relatives to your father's house, or from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in your families, or in you and all your families, rather, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a threefold promise unconditionally of land, of descendants, and of blessing called the Abrahamic Covenant. It's a covenant given in chapter 12. It's going to be ratified in chapter 15. It's going to be signified by the sign of circumcision in chapter 17, a promise that's reiterated to Abraham, to Isaac and his son Jacob. And it's a promise that we're still waiting to see fulfilled. And it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing because it relates uh, to the idea of the land. So how does, this, um, how does this apply as we're looking at this text? How does this apply to Joshua? Well, We've been given a promise that there would be a singular male pronoun in chapter 3, verse 15, he who will come and crush the serpent's head. And uh, now we get a little bit more information in Genesis 12 that we know he's going to come from a specific family, a guy named Abraham who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who's going to be from his line a a son named Judah, and ultimately a, a kid named David. Now, Matthew chapter 1 says this, Uh, It's talking about the genealogy of Jesus, and it says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob. So we've got a reminder, even in the genealogy of Jesus, as to how important this family tree truly is. Now, here's the thing with these people. They are going to have to learn to live how to walk by faith in God without a Bible. There's no Bible yet. They got a couple of blips from God. Hey, Abram, leave your family. Move to Fresno, and so... It's not Fresno technically, it's the land of Canaan. But point being, move from where you are to where you don't know. Come and uh, I will bless you. And I'll give you land, seed, and blessing. They have to learn to walk by faith. And if you look at Genesis chapter 15, verse six, it is the theme verse for the book of Romans. It says that Abram believed God and it was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. So sure enough, these people are learning how to live by faith, and so God says to him, firstly, I'm gonna give you land. Here's where it gets critical for Joshua. I'm gonna give you land. How do you claim land in this time? Thousands of years ago, do you go to City Hall? Do you go to the Planning Commission? Do you submit a permit? Like, what what do you do? Well, you do five things, and Abraham does all five. First, you build an altar to whatever God you serve, and there were all kinds of fake gods around then. You build an altar. Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, Abram builds an altar. Second, you walk the land. Look at chapter 13, verse 17. One of my favorite passages as it relates to Abram, because you just wonder, what's he thinking? But it says that Abram uh, rises and walks the length and the breadth of the land, and God says, I will give it to you. So you, secondly, you walk the land. Third, you plant a tree. You plant a tree, which sounds strange. Turn to chapter 21 of Genesis, chapter 21. It's the only time you see Abraham do it, but it's fascinating. In chapter 21, verse 33, it says, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Now, the interesting thing about a tamarisk tree is you would be hard pressed to find a slower growing tree in all of the trees. This thing was so slow growing, there is no chance, no chance he will ever see it in his lifetime, which means he doesn't plant it for him. Which, by the way, Abram was brilliant. He came from Mesopotamia. He knew agriculture. He knew botany. He knew horticulture. He knew it all. He purposely plants a tree that he will never see the shade from. But his kids will, and his grandkids will. So you plant a tree. Fourth, you dig a well. Turn to chapter 21. Look at verse 30. Just flip a couple verses at verse 30. Abram uh, says, you shall take these seven new lambs, blah, blah, blah. He's making a deal with a guy named Abimelech um, to to be a witness that I dug this well. And so we've got proof here in verse 30, Abraham digs a well. Fifth and final thing, you bury your dead. Turn to chapter 23, look at verse 20. Of all the things that Abraham could have purchased he could have bought the beachfront here. He could have bought that. He, could have bought. he doesn't buy any of it because God already said, I'm going to give it to you. So why would you buy something that you're going to be given? The only thing he buys is chapter 23, verse 20. He buys the field, the field called Machpelah. It's the burial cave where he could bury his family. And so that's how you claim the land. And Abraham does that, okay? He builds an altar. He walks the land, he plants a tree, he digs a well, he buries his dead. It's his stake over and over and over of ownership of the land. Now how does that connect to the book of Joshua? Because the land is the issue. The book of Joshua is about the conquest of this land promised to Joshua, uh, the borders of which go north all the way to Lebanon. They go south almost all the way through the Sinai, almost all the way to Egypt. They go west to the Mediterranean Sea and east on the other side of the Jordan from the Dead Sea all the way north to the Golan Heights just outside of the walls of Damascus. This is the land God promised his people uh, all the way back in Genesis. Now as we go back uh, to the text, these patriarchs were not without issues. So if you're new to the Bible, know it's very hard to find anybody awesome. I mean, other than red letter stuff, these people were hot messes just like we are. And so just like we have our own familial issues, their families were full of failure. I'm talking like polygamy, deceit, abandonment, prostitution, deception, favoritism. These people are a mess and yet God chose to use them. And one of the greatest messes you're gonna find if you go backwards to Genesis 25 is a guy named Jacob. And here's why he's significant. Jacob's gonna have 12 sons, in fact, more than that, but we're gonna, for the sake of our conversation, talk about those 12 sons. If you have a Bible, by the way, that's a print Bible that has maps in the back, you're probably gonna see a, uh, a set of maps that have uh, names in them you might have heard before. Names, here we go, names like uh, Judah and Simeon and Ephraim and Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. These are all the sons of Jacob, listed for you in Genesis chapter 49. Why is this significant? These guys become those that are leading the uh, conquest with Joshua here in just a bit. But as you know of this story, uh, Jacob had a favorite son. Not good, by the way, if you're a parent, to have a favorite son. I don't recommend it, okay, it doesn't turn out well. Joseph was his favorite. His brothers, as you can imagine, hated him. And so his brothers sell him into slavery in Genesis chapter 37, technically traffic him. They, they sell him to Midianite traders who happen to be going to Egypt. Now, what's important about that is in chapter 42 of Genesis, a famine hits the land. And uh, Abraham and his family are now starting to starve because there's no food in the land that God promised them. But boy, there's in the Nile Delta region of Egypt, there's all kinds of food. And so in chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, uh, Jacob now is going to say... Um, he saw that there was a grain in Egypt, and so he's gonna send his sons to now go to Egypt and buy grain. Now, they had sold their brother, didn't know what happened to him, and when they arrive in chapter 45 of Genesis, they arrive to the grain storage in Egypt, and they're curious as to how to get food, and who's the guy running the grain storages in Egypt? Sure enough, their brother Joseph, whom they sold and God sovereignly placed Uh, in Egypt. Now, Joseph was faithful. He was faithful in Potiphar's house. He was faithful to the chief jailer as a prisoner, even though falsely imprisoned. He was faithful overseeing all of the household, even of Pharaoh. And so the book of Genesis comes to a close where God had scattered humanity all over the earth with various languages, ethnicities, and cultures. Uh, God has chosen a special people, to reflect his glory, they're called Hebrews or Jews or Israelites even today. Uh, He has caused a severe famine to hit the land and therefore God placed a man on the inside, Joseph, to preserve God's people in a time of distress as they head to Egypt to buy grain. And so the book in some ways fades to black with God's people in Egypt. Now all the while they're in Egypt, you gotta be wondering, but I thought he promised. See, I thought he promised land. And right now they're in Egypt. And uh, what we're gonna talk about next week is God is, is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but he is faithful. And even after 430 years that these people spend in Egypt, God will deliver his people with Moses and bring them to the land. And that gets us to Joshua chapter one. What I'd like to do though as we close our time is just maybe ask this question. How does... How does an overview of a book like Genesis, and we've covered, by the way, 49 chapters of your Bible. How does an overview of a book of Genesis uh, impact us even today? I I would just give you a couple things maybe to think about, all right? And there's there's been a lot we've covered, but, but here's what I hope are some maybe things that we can process. One, we can be assured of this, God is still in control. He is in control of all things. Um, both actual and possible. Even putting Joseph as the guy in Egypt to handle the grain, God is still in control. He has not changed. So when you wonder if God is gonna come through, if you wonder if God is faithful, if you wonder if God is still true to his word, he, he, is, he is faithful and he is still in control. Second, he is working out his purposes in creation. He is not done. And, and I know that there are times where you pray and you see nothing and you pray and you see nothing and you go, oh, I don't know, maybe God's not Uh, Maybe God's asleep. Maybe God's not at work today. I I just want to assure you, God is still working out his purposes, both in others but also in us. And has God uh, indeed provided a blessing for all nations through the descendant of Abraham? The answer is yes, because as we read of the genealogy of Jesus, he is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament talked about. The Old Testament, in some ways, points like neon to the cross, And the New Testament reflects back like in a mirror to what happened at the cross. And so, yes, um, God was faithful to provide for us. Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of all nations. And I would say just as he had promised Abraham and then was faithful to his promises, has he made promises to us? Listen to John 14, verse 3. Jesus says, if I, I go to prepare a place for you, I will go and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Has God made his promises? Yes. Does it seem like it's been over 430 years since he has come to take us to that place? Yes, it has been much longer than the people of God spent in Egypt. But if we understand his attributes and we understand his character, then we can stay faithful, even in the midst of the waiting, knowing that if he promised, he's gonna fulfill his promise. And so I would close by saying this, finally. As it comes to to our understanding of God, when we read the Bible, and it reframes the way we think about God, and and gets us away from my thoughts, or your thoughts, or, or what we saw on TV, or what we saw on Instagram, or whatever, and we just come to the chapter and verse, what does God say of himself? It's an awful reminder that he is not safe. He is not, but he is good. And because he is good, he can be trusted. Even though the true understanding of the attributes of God are terrifying. The reality is, is, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He has not left us without hope. And the hope that he has provided for us is in Christ, the fulfillment of everything this text spoke of. So I hope that gives us an understanding of who God is, and uh, the people of God here left in our context, at least in Egypt, but the story is not done. The story is just beginning, but we wanted to set it up a little bit with some backstory, so when we get to Joshua chapter one, it'll make more sense. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you are awesome, and uh, we don't need to be afraid of you, because you are good, and so thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us, And as we consider uh, sort of the backstory of the people of God being called, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise given of the land that you said you would give them, Lord, you've made promises to us that, Father, we are reconciled because of Christ and that, Lord, as surely as you were taken away, you will also return. And so we, we live in the blessed hope that the same faithful God from the Old Testament is the same faithful God that we serve even today. So, Give us courage, I pray, in our waiting as we await the faithfulness of our God. we we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.